The apocalypse has arrived. It's 2031 and there are no computers really as we know them now. All of the display screens are broken. They've been bashed up in all the fights for food. You need to get that life-saving information as soon as possible when the zombies are hitting on your door. If you have a slow web connection and the website is slow to load and it isn't performance, everyone's going to die. So if you can't see the content, how can you get that content to users if their screens are all broken? And if the internet is slow, how can you ensure that information is sent to people in a timely manner so they don't die in the apocalypse? Big thanks to our partners, Linode Fastly and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Get $100 in credit at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by Retool. Retool is a low-code platform built specifically for developers that makes it fast and easy to build internal tools. Instead of building internal tools from scratch, the world's best teams, from startups to Fortune 500s, are using Retool to build their internal apps. Assemble your app in 30 seconds by dragging and dropping from the complete set of powerful pre-built components. From there, you write custom code, connect any data source, API, and build custom logic and queries to create exactly the right tools for your business. Spend your time getting UI in front of your stakeholders, not hunting down the best React table library. Retool is also highly hackable, so you're never limited by what's available out of the box. If you can write it in JavaScript and an API, you can build it in Retool. Try Retool out for yourself at retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We record the show live each and every Thursday. You can join in on the hijinks at youtube.com slash changelog and chat along with us in our community slack, jsparty.fm slash community. Oh, and follow the show on Twitter. We're at jspartyfm. Hey, it's party time, y'all. We're so excited to be back this week with a very special, special, special guest. I know I say that every week. All of our guests are really special. And I feel like I have this thing called recency bias where like the one that I'm talking to right now feels like the most special. So Selma, you are the most special. Welcome, Selma. Selma Alam Naylor is joining us today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here in this party. The party music at the beginning was a joy to dance to. I'm ready. I'm hyped. Let's go. Let's do this. And we have K-Ball, not to be mistaked with Disco Ball, right, for the party. Has anybody ever like made that connection? K-Ball, JS Party, Disco Ball? No? Growing up with the last name Ball, <laughs> I have heard them all. Oh. I have heard them all. There are so many fun name jokes you can be on the receiving end of if your last name is Ball. So yes, Disco Ball has happened before. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just coincidental because like our logo for the podcast is a Disco Ball. So it just feels very on brand. I Dance Hustle, which is a disco dance. Right, right. A future show episode. <laughs> so we're really excited to be um, welcoming Selma on the show today because we're going to be talking about a super important topic. And I have a backstory to kind of share with you all before we get into Selma's intro. Because the way I met Selma was actually, I saw her talk being advertised on the internet 
And I was like, this sounds amazing. I want to go to there. And I showed up. Uh, I wasn't part of this meetup community. It was a lovely meetup community in, based out of um, England called AsyncJS, I think, right? In Brighton, yeah. Brighton, yes. Yeah. Brighton is in England, right? So yes. ballpark. <laughs> I went to this online meetup event and Selma gave this incredible talk that just really, it had me thinking for days afterwards. Um, Selma, I'm so excited to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I have a very varied history. Um... I'll start from now and go backwards. So I'm currently a developer advocate for Contentful, advocating for web development best practices and uh, Jamstack-based architecture and approaches and frameworks. My tagline is, I help developers build stuff, learn things, and love what they do. And I think that will come become relevant later as to why I do what I do, because it's not just about tech and the latest fancy, weird Web3 stuff or whatever. It's more than that. And it's, it's about the people, which will become important. Before that, I was uh, a tech lead for five or six years, uh, specializing in front end. I was working in Manchester in the UK at a variety of different places, including agencies, global e-commerce, uh, startups, and other stuff. And then before that, I was working as a music teacher in uh, secondary schools for 11 to 18 year olds. Uh, so I've got that education background experience qualification that I think is really uh, integral to what I do now. At that time, I was also a musical comedian. So I was telling jokes in the form of songs on stage around the UK. And before that, I was a freelance professional musician. I just graduated out of music college. I did composition as my degree. I was in a band. Uh, we, we toured the country. We got an album on Spotify. And, um, whoa. whoa, 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 whoa. Is it still there? It is. All right, that's got to be in the show notes. <laughs> I'm typing as we speak. <laughs> it was 2008. It was released in 2008, so it's a long time ago. So that's me. I, uh, But I always did tech when I was younger. I tried. I mean, there was very little that you could actually do with the internet in its infancy in the 90s in a very rural place in England. And so I think maybe if I was a child now, Maybe things would be a, a lot more different, but actually I do not regret any of my life choices or career route because I think that's what's ultimately brought me here with all of the different bits of experience that helped me write talks that Amal likes so much. Yeah. Wow. Oh my God. Amal, I'm noticing a trend in your invited speakers. Like last week was Broadway. This week it's touring in a band. Like Seriously. Good picks. Well, I mean, you know, I'm an intersectional person myself, as are you, K-Ball. And, you know, what can I say? Like intersectional people are, I think, the future, right? Like, and they are thus very exciting people. So Selma, that's a pretty incredible background. Thank you for sharing that. And I can say like firsthand, having attended one of your talks, like you really are a very passionate person. And I think you have this way of explaining things that clearly, I think now knowing your educator background, like I can see it, you know, so, so kudos. So your talk, this famous talk that we keep skirting around, it was titled how to prevent the collapse of society by building an accessible web. So can you speak a little bit more to that title? 
I have a strange fascination with the impending apocalypse. I have always wanted to prepare for it since I was a child. I'm actually moving house in like a month and a half or so, and I feel like creating a special room in that house to build up a, a ton of supplies for when the apocalypse finally does come. And I used to have weird fantasies about the apocalypse, maybe because it just, the world looks like with social media and the things that are going on, the world looks like it's heading that way in many, many ways. So as a survivalist, <laughs> as someone who wants to live, as someone who has a child who needs to survive for their family legacy to live on, mm. I want to prepare for the apocalypse. And I think if you put this kind of spin on web development and thinking about how we would need to survive when the apocalypse is here, I think it helps us put into perspective what we need to be thinking about today. So for example, setting the scene in the talk, the apocalypse has arrived, it's 2031, and there are no like computers really as we know them now. All of the display screens are broken. They've been bashed up in all the fights for food and the internet is really, really slow. So you can't see things, which is kind of meant to be emulating people who can't see very well or can't see at all, who are having to use technology today to help them live their lives. And also the internet is really, really slow. And actually one of the biggest kind of nuggets of information that I found when I researched for this talk was that in uh, the whole world in 2021, the average internet speed is just marginally faster than the simulated slow 3G speed in Chromium DevTools. And so if the world, most of the world is operating on really slow internet, performance is key, right? And so if you're thinking about the apocalypse when you need this life-saving information, you need to get that life-saving information as soon as possible when the zombies are hitting on your door or whatever is happening in the apocalypse. If you have a slow web connection and the website is slow to load and it isn't performance, everyone's going to die. So if you can't see the content, how can you get that content to users in the apocalypse if their screens are all broken? And if the internet is slow, how can you ensure that information is sent to people in a timely manner so they don't die in the apocalypse? That is the premise of the talk. Dun, dun, dun. So first of all, this premise of the impending apocalypse, like we're going to try not to make this show depressing, but yeah, no, real talk. Yeah, <laughs> that's a very real sentiment that I think many of us have been feeling for quite some time. However, you know, I, I think this this constraint, right, this like this imaginary world constraint of like not being able to maybe see well because there's dust or not having good access to uh, consistent electricity or not having good access to, you know, high speed internet. Like these are constraints that I think help build empathy in a way that's using storytelling that I think is oddly like a relatable factor for engineers, right? Like I feel like engineers are really into like zombies and impending death by zombies and stuff like that. And so it's like an interesting, it's an interesting spin. So we, we know too much already us engineers, you know, we, we, we need to do more <laughs> to prevent what's coming and help save the world with our accessibility skills and our performance skills on the web, surely, right? Can I detour slightly and ask, what goes into a survivalist shelter in the UK? Because I know in the, the US, like all the survivalists are all about like 
guns and ammo and, and things like that. But oh. my understanding is that's a little less accessible there. Victoria's Sponge and, you know, Spotted Dick and like trifles <laughs> and whatever the hell else. <laughs> I was more going along the lines of baked beans and all the different beans and cans of chopped tomatoes, probably jars of pickled eggs and pickled things and jam and toilet roll. Because we know what happens with toilet roll in any kind of crisis. <laughs> Um, right. So I'm going to compose myself here. And apparently text to speech as well. Something that should be going in there. Yes. As many, uh, kind of devices that are hardware, no screens, as many accessibility devices as possible need to go into the shelter. Yes. Right. Good. Right. IP over radio wave, things like that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> okay, well, I think we need a whole spin-off show, my friend, you know? <laughs> How to survive in the apocalypse. <laughs> right. As a software engineer, specifically, you know? It's mm. <laughs> right? a good user story. It's a good user story. Right. We need to start setting up LAN parties again and, you know, <laughs> like all kinds of things. Yeah. But anyway, so you keep talking about, like, accessibility and performance, performance and accessibility. Are we just saying that like accessibility is performance, performance is accessibility? Because it really just feels like some of these things are so related, they are almost interchangeable at times. I think performance is a key part of accessibility, mm -hmm. to be honest, especially when we look at the average internet speed across the world and we look at the variety of devices that people are using across the world and the variety of browsers people are using across the world. I am a big believer that tech is a big enabler to get out of poverty and to um, get an education. If you have an internet connection, you can learn, you have the world. We're not talking about Encarta 95 anymore. We're talking about the whole world at your fingertips. So if somebody in deep, deep poverty in Africa or in South America has access to an internet connection, they have the world at their feet. And if they cannot access that information, like in the apocalypse, they can't access it, then they, they can't get out of where they are. And I think there's happening more and more. You hear stories, you know, tech changed my life because it's an industry that is growing. It is thriving. There's so much money in it. And at the moment, unfortunately, in this capitalist society, we need money to live and thrive and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, if, if people have access to this information in their hands, because mobile devices are so much more popular than desktop devices across the world, Everyone's got a mobile phone. If you have a website or, or something that works effectively on a phone, on small screens, at small resolutions, big resolutions, on a low, slow internet connection, you have, and it's not just about accessibility, it's about access to information, isn't it? It's about access to critical, life-saving, life-changing information. And performance is a big part of that because if your site is slow, if your site crashes, if your site is bloated, if your images are too big and you're, you're robbing the internet user of their bandwidth with your large files and your large images and your slow nonsense load times, then you are doing the world a disservice potentially. It's a, little, it's a profound, ridiculously silly statement, but perhaps you are. Perhaps you are depriving the next generation of people who will be able to take themselves out of poverty as a result of access to information on the internet.
What's up, party people? This episode is brought to you by Sentry. Sentry just shipped their SDK for Next.js. Now, in your Next.js apps, you can capture errors, measure performance, manage releases, configure suspect commits, and automatically upload source maps to view unminified JavaScript and TypeScript with zero-ish configuration. You get your events enriched with device data, breadcrumbs created for outgoing HTTP requests, release health for tracking crash for users and sessions, and automatic performance monitoring for both the client and the server. Check for a link in the show notes for details to this release. JS Party listeners new to Sentry get the team plan for free for three months when you sign up and use the code PARTYTIME at Sentry.io and use the code PARTYTIME because, hey, it's party time, y'all. Selma, that was really, really profound. And obviously that's going to be a running theme for me here, being inspired for the next 30, 40 minutes. However, I'm, you've kind of like skirted around this, like how does accessibility affect new internet users or folks maybe in remote parts of the world? But like, I think for me, the core problem is like, I just feel like developers don't care, you know? Like, it's like, pains me to say that. And so my, my question to you is like, does accessibility have a marketing problem? And if we just like, I know we said, hey, they're not exactly the same thing, right? Accessibility is not perf. Perf is not accessibility, right? There's a Venn diagram relationship here. Yes. Right? But like, what if we just like squinted our eyes a little bit and just renamed accessibility performance? And then all of a sudden we'd get like a bajillion nerds to care about it because there's all of a sudden this gamification. And what do you think? I think there's an interesting take and there's so much to unpack in that question that you asked. The first thing I will say is that I believe developers do care. The developers that I have spoken with, the developers in the communities that I've been part of, the developers in the product teams that I've worked on, they care 100%. But I think this is what we were talking about at the meetup in Brighton. Oh, yes. It's that companies don't care corporations don't care, budgets don't care, and there's no room in the budget to make our sites accessible. There's no time in the time budget in to make our sites accessible. You just have to ship this feature because we want to make money and grow capitalism, blah, blah. <laughs> and so I think it's an industry problem because the people who are controlling the industry, the people who are at the top and making these high level decisions about what features need to go in products and, and what needs to go where, that gets totally lost in the journey of the ticket from the left to the right of the board because it takes time. Accessibility takes so much time. It takes proper testing, proper QA by people who actually have disabilities and who have those impairments and who have that experience of using devices and the internet in the way that they do. The spectrum of the people who have types of disabilities is so varied as well that to test for every single eventuality would also take a very, very long time. And so developers try and make the most of it, I think, but you know, they, they get talked down. They said, no, we don't have time for that. Sorry, just ship the feature, please. And I've been on developer teams where everyone is so upset that they are not allowed to make the sites accessible because it's not in the user story or in the budget, or it's a progressive enhancement later on. And now I think perhaps this marketing problem that you speak of, so 
I talk a lot about how it generally falls upon marginalized, oppressed people to try and fix these problems in the world. And what you see on places like Twitter is that it's always the people who have these disabilities who have to advocate for themselves. And that in itself is a problem because the minority are advocating for something that should be for the majority. And you don't get people in positions of power who are, quote, completely able because they don't have that empathy and they don't have that time and they're not close to those people. Because as we know, tech is not diverse. Tech is a lot of the time full of white privileged men at the top in these C-suites and they don't know. The thing is, what's interesting is that one day one of those people could have an accessibility issue. One day one of those people could lose an eye or lose the use of an arm or a leg or their hearing. Like these things happen to people, sometimes temporarily, sometimes permanently. Then will they think it's important? And so I think there's a distinct big lack of empathy at the top of tech. And I'm not saying it's completely devoid of that. There are definitely places that are talking about this and advocating for it, but it all comes down to the fact that marginalized people have to advocate for themselves and they are not in positions of power to be able to make those changes because of the way the world unfortunately is structured. Question. Yeah. Coming back to this idea of a marketing problem that Amel was talking about. Because I I think, to your point, that's a very deep root cause. And it's not going to be a quick one to be addressed. I think there is a lot of really interesting activity going on in terms of trying to both surface the extent to which tech is dominated by certain majority groups and (laughs) address that issue. And I always have to be careful talking about this because I'm one of those white dudes. It's safe to say that you're not a problematic person, though, K-Ball. I just want to, for the record. I try. I mean, <laughs> one of the things that I always try to remember is that ally is not a permanent state, right? Allyship is an act. So I could be problematic tomorrow if I'm not careful. You have to constantly be, be paying attention because when you are not hit in the face with whether it's an accessibility issue, a privilege issue, if something else, if it's not causing you a problem, it's easy to have it skate out of your eyes. But where I wanted to kind of go is say, are there incentive structures we could talk about around accessibility that do hit those folks currently in power in places they care? And one I kind of want to go into is profit and, you know, how much money is lost by having your e-commerce site be inaccessible? How much types of profit might be missed? And accessibility, like we talk about accessibility referring to particular disabilities and ability to access things. But to me, accessibility is about machine readability. We're taking a site that previously required a human to make sense of it and applying a bunch of things that allow machines to make sense of it so that they can translate it to humans in different ways. And that machine translatability also potentially opens a whole range of possible applications and profit and other things that those folks at the top might well care about even if they do not have empathy for folks who are necessarily needing these things. That's the thing as well. And I mean, it's think about how many more people could use your site and buy things from your site if they could navigate it effectively. In my talk, now I don't wish to hate on any companies or developers right now, but in my talk, I actually have um, some very extensive examples of accessibility issues on one of the most popular websites in the world, which is AliExpress. 
And if that is one of the most popular websites in the world already, and it's completely not navigable with a screen reader currently on when I was writing this talk, think about how if AliExpress could optimize the use of their website with the machine readability that you're talking about, think about that could double, triple, quadruple in profit and, and size. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. You kind of hit the nail like, it's like you don't even know how good you could be, right? So it's not yeah. like you can even say like, hey, you're losing 5% opportunity because, you know, much like compound interest, like this stuff is exponential, right? So I think that's like a really fascinating point. And to kind of circle back to my marketing problem, like question, like I just feel like as a tech lead, like I always encourage engineers like, hey, you want to work on tech debt, you want to work on writing more tests, that sounds awesome, but market it appropriately, tie that to a business value. And I think that's kind of the point that K-Ball is making as well. It's like, hey, is there a way to tie this to a business value? And I think like for me, that's where maybe metrics come into play a little bit. Like, is there a way, this stuff is so complex, there's no fully um, accessible proof kind of like tooling suite that you can add to your website. There's a combination of lots of different things uh, along with lots of different manual efforts. And every app is a snowflake, right? Because of its content and whatever else and user base language support. And so I'm just curious, like, where does it even come? Like, how do you even start to like wrap your head around like, okay, well, I want to make my site accessible. Like, where do I start? Right? Because it's quite daunting. I've just had an idea for a new web standard that potentially could change the game. Mm -hmm. You know how there's like a requirements for like GDPR and, and all these cookie consent and all these compliance regulations to put particular things on your website when people are visiting them. How about in, in the footer or somewhere prominent on your website, you need to display the accessibility scores that you get from uh, WebAIM or WCAG and, and then you have to display them and and then maybe those kind of websites that score low, you have no choice, but it's law to display them now. And the websites that score low get ranked way down in Google and gamify it like you were saying like that. Let's put some numbers on it, put public numbers. Let's make sure that people understand what this actually means. And so you're talking about tooling, you're talking about um, using uh, automated tools and things mm -hmm. to make sites accessible. It's so proven that those things don't work, yeah, yeah. especially in terms of speed. It's a half measure. Exactly. And and it's, oh, we're doing accessibility because we're putting an overlay on our site or we're putting it through a, a tool or this, that, and the other. The key thing I think with accessibility is that because it is for humans, humans need to do it. Humans need to have that empathy in order to do it. And I think using an automated tool to do a half measure job is not how we should be thinking about it. We every day are building websites for people to use. We're not building websites for machines to use. And I think what I like to bring to tech is the kind of human centered element to be like, can you think, think about the people who are going to be browsing your page and how they might be browsing it? And let's design it for them, not for you. Let's not write ridiculous, silly spaghetti code because we can and because it looks cool and because no one else can understand it. So you look like a genius. Let's build <laughs> things for people, right? And, mm -hmm. and let's enjoy these people using it. Otherwise, what really is the point? Yeah. What are we doing, actually? We're not making people happy. No. Mm -hmm. So one thing I think that might be helpful is talking loudly about those costs for folks and making, once again, that business case. So one thing you could do, like GDPR, is you could legislate it and say, okay, like 
you must do this. And that's a hammer, but that's a very slow process to get that to actually happen and apply. But I remember like nobody used to care about performance either. And then Amazon published this study and they said, you know, every hundred milliseconds is a percent of profit. And suddenly everybody started caring about performance and it was pushing and pushing. And then beyond that, Google started to say, okay, if sites are really slow, that impacts their use because people would not be as satisfied with Google because they blame everything for Google. And Google started ranking for that. So if we can start kind of getting once again, these incentives, and I was looking around, it looks like there is a study on like the level access blog, which I have no idea who this is. They have less cachet than Amazon, certainly, and things like that. But it was looking at, you know, cost to e-commerce and they pegged it as something like 10% ish of online shoppers would click away from your site if it's difficult to use with a screen reader or something like that. So it's not as clean as every hundred milliseconds gets you 1%, but it is pretty compelling to say, okay, if you're below some bar, like you're losing 10% of your revenue. I'll post that link in the JS party channel, but yeah. And is that like a correlation just saying that like websites that happen to be bad for screen readers are also just like, people are also just unhappy, like less. No, they're specifically for the screen reader folks. Okay. Okay. Got it. The numbers they're saying here is 71% of shoppers with disabilities will click away from your website if it's too difficult to use. And the majority will pay more money for the same item on a competitor website if that site is more accessible. And then they tried to like track what percentage of online customers are in this group. And this study, which was in 2016, pegged it at 10% of online shoppers in the UK. Fascinating. I think maybe what we're trying to really suss out here is like, are there metrics that could help drive this conversation to like, to incite, I think, business leaders caring, right? And it really sucks, right? Because it kind of comes back to that earlier point you were making, Selma, around like, hey, my C-suite is the one that actually doesn't care. Like, it's not the developers, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I don't know, it's a tough nut to crack, so. I'm hopeful that uh, maybe in 30 to 50 years, it's a long time to wait, when the C-suites have diversified because they've all... <laughs> I thought you were going to say when they die. I was like, wow, Selma, that's morbid. <laughs> <laughs> when they've diversified because tech is becoming more and more a place where, like you right. say, the, these intersectional people are entering. There's late stage career tech converts and, and things mm-hmm. like that. I think the landscape, I think, I hope would be pretty different in 50 years. And so maybe it maybe it will happen because we'll have that representation at the top. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll have disabled people on C-suites. We'll have people who find it difficult to use the internet in traditional ways in positions of, quote, power, you know. And I think the generation that's coming underneath us is very very dedicated to that type of cause, I think. And things have to change. Surely they have to change. And I mean, look at what's happened to the internet since like 2000. That's 20 years. And think what could happen in the next 20 years. Like things are changing exponentially, right? And who knows what the future might bring as long as we keep talking about it and educating the people that are coming after us about it and showing people the way and just we are in that like middle transition point where okay the internet is a thing now it's in our lives it's never going everyone does everything on the internet now especially because of what we've been through in the last like two years and so 
We need to enable people. Some of the things that have happened in the UK, actually, since the beginning of the pandemic, the way like there used to be shops that you'd go to where you'd have to ask, do you take contactless? And now everyone takes contactless, you know, and those societal changes, whether it's a pandemic or or not, like things happen sometimes when you least expect them. Mm-hmm. I do have high hopes. I hope that when I'm 75 and still doing JS Party podcasts that I can reflect on this and say, yeah, we, we did a good job by not shutting up about it and advocating for the people who need better access to information on the web. I also wonder how much of this is cyclical because when the web first was born, people were just using HTML and HTML is extremely accessible because it's very machine readable. And then we started to try to build much more full-featured applications and maneuver things with CSS into all sorts of dimensions and have JavaScript that makes all this types of interactivity that was not naturally accessible and not didn't have accessibility baked in in the way that native components and HTML did. And there was this rapid flowering and everything was done in the new way and everyone was doing their own thing and all of these different things. And it feels like that is actually starting to calm down in some ways. There's still a lot going on in the JavaScript ecosystem, but there's also some consolidation. UI frameworks are starting to solidify much more. Many of them are baking in accessibility much more. More and more things around that interactivity and and JavaScript is kind of getting baked in at the browser level. And so I wonder if we're actually at a place where some of the tooling is now catching up again and going to make it much easier to be accessible by default. Because I think that's the other piece of this is if your platform makes it easy to write accessible and hard to write not accessible, you're going to write accessible by default because that's the shortest path to delivery the same way right now, shortest path to delivery is not baking in accessibility. Yeah. And actually, Cable, I think I'm going to sum, I want to kind of riff off of that because interestingly enough, you know, Google's taken that strategy in terms of how Google wants to influence the web being a faster place, right? So instead of kind of asking library authors like, hey, please like reduce your bundle size, hey, this, that, like they have just taken the route of making the actual frameworks like Next.js, tools that developers use at mass better and faster, right? And that's like, I think like that's a very, it's a shift in strategy, kind of like to the one that K-Ball was speaking to. But I kind of wanted to share that as an example of something that you're right, like you have a, people that are on staff being paid by Google that are also contributing to Next.js full time and that ecosystem. So I'm just saying like, if you can't beat them, like sneak up behind them and beat them there? Like, I don't know. (laughs) If you can't convince them to change, give them free tools that make the change easy for them. Right, 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 exactly, right. There we go, thank you. Much better said. (laughs) Cable, you make a really good point about things being cyclical. I've been doing a lot of work on like the history of the Jamstack over the last couple of months and how web development changed from 2011 to 2021. And one of the things we saw like in 2011, 2010, these JavaScript frameworks were just being born. There was Backbone.js and AngularJS and everyone was like, oh, JavaScript is a thing now, right? We, we can do everything. We can make things feel fast because they're yeah. single page applications. All those thick clients. Yeah, that, that don't need to go <laughs> back and forward from the server and, and this is the future. And it's a little bit like, um, you know how when you, maybe you go to university or college, right? And you have 
mega parties for like the first couple of months and you go wild, you go right in deep and you write JavaScript and JavaScript only and your JavaScript creates your HTML, you know, React, JSX compiles to some kind of HTML with all this other stuff and you go in deep. But then you start to mature and you start to realize actually maybe this isn't the answer. And so some uh, of the newer, more forward-looking frameworks now, such as Astro and SvelteKit, they are definitely more concerned with removing as much JavaScript as possible in the client because we know the performance implications. In the talk that I gave that Amal saw, I analyzed my Next.js application, my personal website. Again, love Next.js, nothing against it, but I pre-render everything on my homepage and yet I'm still getting 30 JavaScript files delivered to the client when I should just get an HTML document. I did some comparisons between JavaScript framework with static HTML and CSS and the, the performance implications from the size of the bundle you're getting delivered to the browser, going back to the apocalypse when things need to be as quick and as small as possible, it was astronomical, the difference. And yes, these frameworks can help us architect large scale front end applications. You know, they're not just websites anymore. They are, they are products. But I guess the, the question you can ask yourself is, do you really need that big JavaScript framework? How about like Cable saying, just write some HTML, just write some CSS, make it lean if you don't need that. And I think that's what's really nice about SvelteKit because there's um, now this switch where you can just render HTML and, and no JavaScript. And Astro is trying to get you as little JavaScript as possible and it's mm -hmm. zero by default. So mm -hmm. I think it's cyclical. We're coming back to the web of the 90s, but we've learned so much. I think we had to go on that frat party journey to understand where the pitfalls were and to have a bit of fun along the way. And now we've come out of it. We're like, okay, I don't need to go wild anymore. Let's be sensible and let's be mature and let's grow up. And so I think the web is, is shifting. It's growing up, it's maturing. And I think it is down to people like developer advocates and people working on these frameworks to, to try and push that and educate people in that direction, especially newer developers who are often encouraged by the industry to just jump straight in on the newest, latest and greatest JavaScript framework that delivers too much JavaScript to your browser. So it's a cumulative community effort, I think, is what's needed. Yeah, uh, I, I think that pressure is coming from Twitter, you know, the Twitter-driven development. <laughs> it's very real. <laughs> this is like an incredible segue into something that I want to get into next, which is really talking about like, is JavaScript a liability, actually? And so stay tuned for that and more in our next segment with the lovely Selma. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fastly. They're running an awesome promo on Compute at Edge. They're inviting our entire listener base to move latency-sensitive workloads to the edge with Compute at Edge free for three months, plus up to $100,000 a month in credit for an additional six months. This is a limited time offer, so head to Fastly.com slash podcast as soon as you can to check it out and get all the details. Here's the TLDR. 
Fastly's edge cloud network and modern approach to serverless computing allows you to deploy and run complex logic at the edge with unparalleled security and blazing fast computational speed. Scale instantly and globally, reduce origin load, get real-time observability, and get seamless integration with your existing tech stack. Head to fastly.com slash podcast to get Compute at Edge free for three months, plus up to $100,000 a month in credit for an additional six months. Once again, fastly.com slash podcast. Selma, loving this analogy of drinking too much, drinking too much JavaScript in this case, <laughs> and learning like, hey, we gotta take it easy. We gotta build up a tolerance. But also JavaScript can, you know, in large doses can be a little dangerous perhaps, you know? And I think you're on the money with saying that like, we needed to feel that burn firsthand or else we would never have known, right? Like, I love that. Don't you love that, K-Ball? Like, I can see you smiling. Like, you're just like, yep. I'm just now playing with this JavaScript party because we are at the <laughs> JS party. We are. We are. <laughs> and I feel like some episodes are like we're shooting shots and some episodes it's like <laughs> chilling with a beer, right? Like True that. And I'm personally much more of a chilling with a beer type of person. but I'm into shots. But, you know, sometimes you need more JavaScript. <laughs> Not into shots in real life, just shots of JavaScript. But yeah, no, I'm I'm with I'm with you, Cable. And so this is a super powerful analogy, Selma. I'm gonna use it in the future, and I will attribute it to you. Oh. I love it. And so you know, we have two billion websites and growing on the internet, right? Internet's a really big place. Only two percent of that, by the way, is React, if even. So just FYI, um, just to wrap your head around the scale and. 95% of those 2 billion websites, according to a stat that I found on your slides, use JavaScript, which makes me think, wow, 5% of the web uses no JavaScript? That's cool. But also, like, it makes me think you're talking about the apocalypse and internet connectivity, and you're talking about resilience. And I'm like, JavaScript isn't resilient. JavaScript times out a lot. Like, what was it? You said the BuzzFeed folks at BuzzFeed put together some stats on their website. Y'all are very familiar with BuzzFeed, uh, creator and feeder of memes and internet culture. Um, so they get a ton of hits per month and from all kinds of devices. And their numbers were about 156 million requests for JavaScript files per year timeout. That averages to about 13 million failed requests a month, right? So that could be somebody's internet cutoff. That could be just some, um, like a bit flip, you know, something's going on with the CDN, lots of reasons, but that's a lot of JavaScript failing. And so like, how do we plan for that resilience? Cause it seems like the answer is HTML, but I don't see anybody really planning for HTML. So I'm just trying to like, obviously frameworks like Astro are pushing the needle, but that's very bleeding edge, mm. right? So how do we plan for this resilience? I think it's a lot about how developers are allowed to explore and educate and develop themselves within their day jobs. I'm a very lucky person in that I get to play with tech as my day job. I don't have to build large scale products for clients who are paying me money. And so I get to like see the trade-offs. I get to experiment. I get to go down these rabbit holes. Like today on my Twitch stream, I was looking at font loading and I went down a huge rabbit hole about how fonts 
apparently optimized in Next.js, and I don't even think they are, but they are somewhat, but they're not really. Fonts are a whole nother podcast, you know. So I think if developers are allowed to educate themselves and go on these journeys themselves, a bit like the JavaScript frat party journey, Mm -hmm. um, I think they'll be able to make more informed decisions about tech choices in their companies. A lot of the time, I think uh, you see people say, oh yeah, we'll just use React. I'll just use Next. Oh, we'll just use Angular. I'll just use this. Because that's what everyone else has used. And that's how they, what they know how to use. But actually, is there something else? Maybe at a company that's building a random product, they could actually build their own framework, which which solves <laughs> some of these problems, you know, already. I don't, don't write your own framework. It's going to be called Best JS, uh, you know, <laughs> aka not the best JS, actually, because please use open source tools when and if possible, kids. It's a running joke, isn't it? That, um, you know, how many JavaScript frameworks have been released this second? Because there are, there are a lot, but people are experimenting, which is great. But I think, again, if you go back to real world developers, real world people who are working in tech, there's patterns that you fall into in teams because again, if there's no time for accessibility in the budget, there's definitely no time to educate yourself on actually the future of the web and whether you should be using that framework or how you can reduce the loading time by using less JavaScript and being a little bit more innovative. I, mm-hmm. There's no time really for innovation in the general tech industry, in most people's day-to-day jobs because there's no space because time is money and money... Yeah. Makes the world go round. Money is time. Yeah, no, no, I, I hear you. Well, you know what song I'm playing in my head right now? I'm playing I Got 99 Problems and Web Fonts Are One. You know, like, <laughs> it seems like, you know, oh my God, Selma, like so many things. Web Fonts are probably about 20 of those problems, actually. Right. And speaking of problems, so you, you talk about this, like there isn't enough time in the day, but like there are some really low hanging offenses uh-huh. on the internet, aren't there? You shared some of the top common top 10 common errors and I couldn't believe how simple they were like it might take you a total of 30 minutes to fix all of most of these on your own personal site so do you want to just kind of run through them real quick for us Summer? so the quick ones to fix and to always bear in mind and I guess this is where the frameworks have to help us is alternative text on images right the, the amount of times you see blank alternative text or no alt attribute um, these, this is the attribute that reads out the description of the image for people who use screen readers. And also sometimes there's absolutely bobbins alternative text, picture of a chair. Describe that chair to me, please. I love writing really like colorful alternative text for people, especially on Twitter when I'm adding pictures. I write sentences and sentences and describe every single part of the image as like little <laughs> Easter eggs for people who are using screen readers. I, I think it's a really fun thing to do. Missing form input labels. And I, this one, right, missing form input labels plus low contrast text, I think is a symptom of the web is designed by designers today. And designers also don't necessarily have the time, space, budget to educate themselves on actually how a web page should be made up. And then couple that with a a fresh developer who's working with a new JavaScript framework who doesn't have time to be mentored. They just got to get these features out. Mm -hmm. These designers and developers need to work together to create beautiful functional. It should be function over form. No pun intended. No pun intended. And make sure that um, designers also have that knowledge about how a web page should be machine readable, right? I think maybe maybe designers should go on HTML courses and have a look actually at, at how the web 
I mean, there's, there's lots of design trends on the web, isn't there? And I think that can overtake stuff because people want stuff to look new and flashy and pretty. And But, you know, these low contrast things and missing form labels. And another one, empty links. There's this big trend, obviously, of having social icons on your web pages as SVGs or something wrapped in links to your social profiles. Mm -hmm. But if it's just an SVG with no context, um, with no... Aria role and description or any or title or anything and the link doesn't have a title it really is really is completely like looking at nothing if you're using yeah. a screen reader there's no context there's no anything and again empty buttons empty buttons because the the text is added with css or some other like icon svg or something like how am i meant to add this to my basket if it's just got a an icon on with no description or title or any contextual thing and again very symptomatic of this whole single page application you click a button javascript makes all this stuff happen and you add something to your basket if that was not in a javascript framework and you had to use a proper server side redirect link to add something to your basket with query parameters that would actually be slightly better without the javascript framework even if you didn't really pay that much more attention to accessibility without javascript it would have been better already yeah it would have been more reproducible yeah and i think you know people forget like some of the stuff you were sharing on your slides like people doing really clever stuff with CSS and lots of dynamic content, stuff that shouldn't be dynamic. Like it's almost like we decided to do everything with JavaScript and mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, think about the web in these three layers where it's like the DOM for structure, JavaScript for interactivity and CSS for design. Like we've kind of gone full hay on like the structure being created by JavaScript, right? Like. Kind of a crazy place to be. I mean, CSS is created with JavaScript these days, isn't it? You have CSS in JS everywhere. And it's like, I've tried a lot of these and, you know, especially getting to grips with something like Tailwind, where to add a text shadow, I have to write JavaScript inside the configuration. And it's just, why, why, why? Just let me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Honestly, I think it's just, you know, ultimately, like, you're gonna, you know, you have a hammer, you see everything as a nail, right? And I think for mm -hmm. us, like, as engineers that write primarily with JavaScript, like, JavaScript is our hammer. And I think that's what we, JavaScript being the hammer, this is the result, right? Like, and this is the frat party hangover that we're hopefully trying to reel ourselves back from. So that's really interesting. So we'll share a link to your slides where everybody can see some of these um, offenses, but, you know, low contrast, missing alt text, missing input from labels, empty links, missing document language attributes, empty buttons. Like these are on a massive number of websites on the internet. An interesting fact is that when uh, WebAIM surveyed 1 million homepages for accessibility in 2021, um, there's an average of 51.4 errors per page across <laughs> 1 million home pages and that's just the home page that's just the landing page it's not even the like functional parts of the website 51.4 errors on one single page yeah. well so let's get a little tactical here because we've done a lot of like here's the problem there's a big problem and there is a mm -hmm. big problem right and i think you know there's many places this comes from that over dependence on javascript like all of engineering is trade-offs right there are some beautiful things you get out of having 
only having to worry about a single framework that's all interconnected and can all be tied together, but there are some drawbacks and we've been highlighting those. But let's talk a little bit about what are some just tactical things people can do to start eating away at this. And one thing I wanna put out there is, you know, we already have tools for catching these obvious errors, right? Like it's really easy to add some basic linting rules in your project. You probably are, if you're writing a bunch of JavaScript, I hope you already have a JavaScript linter in there. You can add a linter that checks, hey, do all of my images have alt text? Do all of my form inputs have labels? And those are things that like, they impact accessibility, but the labels one, like that impacts everyone. That impacts, like every time I go to a site and I'm like, oh yeah, autofill my information and it goes bleh, bleh, and like chokes on it and stuff isn't there. And like, I'm like, oh, you are not labeling your form. So all of my autofill is not working. So I'm gonna bounce. This is 2021. I'm not gonna spend five minutes filling out your form. I filled that out before. My browser takes care of that if you do your work right. And I think there are there are a myriad tools out there that I use throughout the development process. And I think a lot of the time people will look at accessibility when the thing is finished. But I think it's something to bear in mind as you develop every every section of code you write, let's check it. I use Axe DevTools, which is a Chromium extension, catches some great great things, looks at color contrast, looks at the semantic HTML. I use Wave Evaluation Tool, which does a very similar thing, but also concentrates, which focuses very much on ARIA as well and how you structure your page semantically. Lighthouse Tools give you some accessibility tips and um, a color contrast checker I use as well. I think one of the most important things as, as to remember in this journey is check often with a variety of tools, because not all tools will check everything. And you have to use your judgment sometimes, because for example, there's an accessibility error on my homepage where I have a skip, a hidden skip link in the header for screen reader users, but it doesn't show for people who are looking at it. That's on purpose because it's for the semanticness of the page, but my accessibility tools will catch that. So you have to understand actually what you're trying to achieve. Just like you uh, commit little and often, Check accessibility mm -hmm. little and often so it doesn't become this huge mammoth problem mm -hmm. when you're about to release your product. Yeah. Bake it in from the beginning and factor it into your user stories, factor it into your testing and your QA, and then it, it'll just be part of your life and won't even be a big, big thing anymore. Yeah, I love that. I love this like accessibility as you go mindset, because I, I can say like, I don't always have that, right? For me, it is this thing that's like pre-production, like before I release, like let's do a bunch of checks and then change all of our code because we messed it up so bad, right? Like very common mistake and pitfall everyone. And this is where I think some of that onus needs to come from us, where we need to kind of shift our mental model about like, brushing our teeth every day versus once a month, right? Like accessibility, a little accessibility every day goes a long way. It's the 1% thing, you know, you know, you talk about like if you get 1% better every day mm -hmm. or something like that, then you end up over time, like a million percent better. I mean, the yeah. maths are wrong, but that kind of thing, just little and often. Yeah. But I think those tools and the systems are really important, right? Like I've been right. paying attention to accessibility for years now and I am not great. Honestly, mm -hmm. it's not something that I continuously do all the time, except to the extent that I've baked it into my systems and tools, right? And so mm -hmm. having the linting rules, having the every check-in must include an axe report or whatever the set of things are, 
but make it part of the system. Right. As long as it's individual developer responsibility, it's never going to happen. Very true. Yeah, no, I would say one more thing to maybe add to this list of things to do is consider having a design system. And if you're a small team, just a centralized place for all of your components, because what you can do then is, you know, with the centralized area, it's one place to fix stuff. There's no like 50 files change in this PR, like, right? So if you can kind of centralize that as much as possible, any improvements that you make to ARIA, as well as including ARIA as part of the contract to use the components that you're creating, right? Like, hey, I'm gonna make a button component. Like, I'm gonna make sure that this button is never gonna be actually empty. I'm gonna make sure that the content for this button isn't created by JavaScript, like whatever it is, right? So all of those things are things that you can um, try to centralize and export, right? To make your life easy. So Selma, to kind of make sure that we have some time to talk about Jamstack, like, can you tell us about like, what is Jamstack? I know you're a huge advocate of it. And just can you explain to our guests like why it's one path for maybe more accessible web applications? So the biggest thing with Jamstack in terms of accessibility really is is the speed that you can get something from X to Y because of this whole CDNs at the edge architecture. So for those of you who don't really know much about the Jamstack, it started in 2015. Um, Jam stood for JavaScript APIs and markup. It was after the whole Angular, Backbone, JS, React thing started happening. It um, came about as a little ecosystem of you built stuff with JavaScript that connected to APIs and got data from places and compiled down to pre-rendered static HTML at build time and served from a CDN. And the CDN thing is the key here and how that has grown. It's supposed to be fast because it's meant to be static stuff served from CDNs all around the world, closest to where you are regardless. So you're not waiting seconds and seconds and seconds to contact a server on the West Coast if you're in Germany, that kind of thing. And so that's where the speed aspect and the kind of accessibility aspect around the world, like websites on the Jamstack are inherently accessible around the world because of that architecture on the edge. And it was obviously meant to be like super speedy sites because you've compiled everything down to just HTML. There's no JavaScript delivered. It's just static. You know, the first static site generator was Jekyll. And you could enhance that with client-side JavaScript, but the whole premise was that just deliver HTML to your browser and CSS and have a great time. Obviously now with, with how Jamstack has now kind of expanded and the ecosystem is rich, there's now over 300 static site generators in the Jamstack ecosystem. Everyone's trying something different with all these new bleeding edge ones coming out as well to try and solve the JavaScript problem. But basically people saw the Jamstack as a way to get stuff out quickly, get it to people quickly using what we knew JavaScript could do at the time. And now there's um, serverless, so you can create your own APIs in your front end frameworks. You can um, do all sorts of fancy stuff and it can scale. You know, I was looking at the results of the 2021 Jamstack community survey and in the top five types of sites now on the Jamstack, there's B2B and e-commerce. So e-commerce is like starting to thrive on the Jamstack because of its capabilities. But again, we come to this whole problem 
do you really need this much JavaScript to create an e-commerce site, really? And are you using the Jamstack in, why are you using the Jamstack for e-commerce? You know, what's your, is it just because it's cool? What are your reasonings? Versus like server-side rendered. Yeah, exactly. You know. And and what's great now is obviously you can get server-side rendering on the Jamstack as well. You can get mm-hmm. everything on the Jamstack. You can get all sorts of rendering. We're going to have to come back and do another show on Jamstack. <laughs> like, no, really, because I think the landscape has really changed since I've like taken a look at like, what is this Jamstack thing people are going nuts about, right? Like, I think Jamstack has grown to to be a bigger bubble and I'm eager to maybe try to break that down a little bit, but, but that's really fascinating. And so how do kind of the Google Core Web Vitals play into Jamstack applications? Like, because there's things like, well, I guess you want to maybe just share what some of the core Google Web Vitals are. and So it's really interesting that, uh, so these core Web Vitals have been around for quite a little while, but since June of 2021, they're actually now actively used to rank sites in Google search results. So this is the whole gamification thing. So if your site doesn't get good marks in these core Web Vitals, you'll be penalized on the search pages. And we know no one really goes past page one. So the the core web vitals measure loading performance with large contentful paint. And if your site does not have the largest contentful paint and load most of it in within 2.5 seconds, that's when you'll get penalized. So that's still a long time to wait in this day and age when we need stuff now, now, now. And in the apocalypse, 2.5 seconds is still actually quite a long time. There's the first input delay which measures interactivity and pages should have an FID of 100 milliseconds or less that can be usable. You know, have you ever gone to a website where you're trying to click in a form field or you're trying to like do something like click a button and the JavaScript hasn't like initiated that button click and it's like, what's going on? And then you bounce right off. Yeah, we call it the uncanny valley. That's kind of the popular term, I think. It's because, you know, it looks like it works, but it doesn't. doesn't. Not yet. Give it a few minutes (laughs) or a few seconds. 100 milliseconds is not very long. Not for my brain, Selma. That's like, yeah, yeah, just kidding. (laughs) And the, the third one, which is the one I talk about the most, is a cumulative layout shift, which measures visual stability. So have you ever, again, gone to a website where things start loading and, oh, I want to click that button. But oh, wait, as I go to click the button, some nonsense loads in, slots in via JavaScript, and I click that nonsense button instead. And oh, I've charged myself $100 because I clicked the wrong thing because of CLS. And your CLS score should be less than 0.1. And I don't know entirely how it's measured in terms of pixels and moving things on the page, but it's there all the time. It's even in my password manager on my phone. When I open the passwords up, I go to click the top password, but every time, most of the time that I do, there's another button that moves. It moves, yes. Oh my gosh, that's annoying. Are you on dash lane as well? No. Oh, interesting. I use one password, but I've hit the same thing where like, interesting. I'm ready to click and it's like, ah, I've hit the same issue with one password in every password manager. Yeah, it's just, so I have to wait. I have to wait. I've trained myself to wait and it's difficult. It's a forms thing. Yeah. So largest contentful paint, first input delay and cumulative layout shift, those three things together. Again, another way to measure performance, but also accessibility. 
Cumulative layout shift is an accessibility problem, especially for people who aren't used to using the internet and aren't used to knowing what CLS is. You know, especially older people who are starting to get into the internet, even younger people. Think of the kids who are starting to use the internet and they have, they click a, a, a button accidentally and they cost their parents hundreds of dollars or something like that, you know? Yeah. There's that kind of accessibility as well. If they can click anything on the page and cost $100, they're going to click it. It doesn't matter if it's shifting or not. <laughs> well, I, I, well, I was just thinking, think about that 11-year-old that's used a browser for the first time. You know, they've had an iPhone since they were two, but mm. this is their first time leaving an app, <laughs> you know, yes. where everything isn't preloaded, you know, with the binary that you download. You know what I mean? After virtual school, they don't exist. <laughs> oh, just joking. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, after I would say pre-COVID, I would say good chance that maybe your 11-year-old has been on the internet for seven years, but like hasn't actually ever used a browser, right? Like it's crazy how everybody's in the, in the native world when... And, younger generations, but anyways. So I, I guess this is where like the crossover, the Venn diagram happens with accessibility and performance. Yeah. Core Web Vitals are measuring a bottom line performance, but there are accessibility concerns that come part and parcel with that, that crossover in terms of who is using the page and how they are able to use it because of how you, you build it. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I mean, this has been a really insightful and punny mm -hmm. talk and or conversation, I should say. I learned a lot and I don't know. How about you, K-Ball? Oh yeah. Plus it's fun. Very fun. We've got some great possible <laughs> show titles coming around around the apocalypse <laughs> and frat parties and other things. We'll see what <laughs> I think this metaphor of JavaScript as a frat party versus hanging over beers versus whatever. I think that's gonna stick around. I don't know. I think so too. <laughs> you invented it. It was invented here. It is the JS party, so. <laughs> I am an yeah. innovator. You heard it first here, people. So Sama, where can people find you online? How can they connect with you? You can find me as White Panther everywhere, white P4 nth 3R if you use a screen reader. I have really tried to uh, read out alternative things for screen readers. I haven't cracked that yet because I really want people to know me as White Panther rather than silly numbers, but that's, it was a joke name and I'm stuck with it. You can find me on Twitter, GitHub, uh, whitepanther.com and Twitch and YouTube all over the internet. And you're a streamer, right? You're on, you're like on the live internet. I I stream on Twitch twice a week. I do, uh, I'm trying to work on the YouTubes a bit more uh, because, but uh, it's time consuming. I wish I could find um, anyone out there, a video editor who can tell a story with tech because live streams are very hard to uh, whittle down to a sensible time when uh, you need to tell a story and show progress um, if you haven't built it yourself. It's a very, very, very niche skill. And if someone can have this skill, they will make a lot of money because they can sell services very, very well. Yeah, so I second that. So Selma, again, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Um, thank you for educating us and making us think and making us laugh. It's been a pleasure. So I guess I'm going to leave you with some closing thoughts, which are, some of this is from Selma's mouth directly. I'm going to quote <laughs> you. In the apocalypse, time to interactive is the difference between life and death, end quote, Selma. And for me, my quote is, uh, who needs accessible websites, kids? Trick question. Everybody. It's everyone. Everyone needs accessible websites. So be inclusive, everyone. Have a phenomenal Thanksgiving or holiday season or whatever you celebrate. And we'll catch you all next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. That.
that is our show. Thanks for listening. If this is your first time, subscribe now at jsparty.fm or just search for JS Party in your favorite podcast app. We're in there. And if you're enjoying the pod, do me a favor and tell a friend to check it out. Hey, you might just help them find their new favorite podcast. How cool would that be? JS Party is produced by me, Jared Santo, with music by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Special thanks to our longtime partners, Fastly, Linode, and Lon Sharkley. Next up on the pod, it's the big Rich Harris episode. Stay tuned for some svelte goodness. That's all for this week. We'll talk to you again next time. Man, JavaScript is just pure.